When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Suddenly, the government has headroom for tax cuts, like your broke mate has headroom for a week in Vegas. Claiming it's this incredibly generous tax break is a little disingenuous at best. There's a lot of sleight of hand here. I wonder if the newspaper headline writers are going to pick up on it in time for tomorrow morning's editions. I think Jeremy Hunt's been missing a trick here, hasn't he? Consulting dead pets on policy. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. As we're recording this episode of Planet Normal, Jeremy Hunt's just delivered his autumn statement in the House of Commons. It's still late November, but the Chancellor was already channeling Santa. That's bound to annoy co-pilot Pearson. She hates the growing practice of putting Christmas decorations up just a few weeks after Halloween. (laughs) But Hunt's elves in the Treasury have anyway been busy, with the Chancellor pulling sizable tax cuts out of his pre-Christmas stocking for both businesses and individuals, while also handing out inflation-busting upgrades to both the basic state pension and other working-age benefits. Just a few weeks ago, Alison, both the Chancellor and Prime Minister were insisting that tax cuts were irresponsible, nay, impossible. (laughs) But having sacked the Home Secretary and still trailing Labour in opinion polls by a massive 20 points, the Tory High Command felt they had to do something, and that something was cutting taxes. It's a busy news agenda. Hamas and Israel have called an operational pause in hostilities, and reactions to the autumn statement will be front and centre in the days to come. But let's start with the new immigration figures, Alison, the subject of your latest Telegraph column. Before we plunge into that, Liam, can we just give a nod to the excellent fellow who has just become the president of Argentina? I'm sure Planet Normal listeners will have clocked this Engelbert Humperdinck lookalike, Javier Millet, who is known as El Loco or the, the Madman. The Mad One. He's a fan of Al Capone and Margaret Thatcher, aren't we all? I think my favourite fact about President Millet, which you'll appreciate, co-pilot, the great love of his life was an English mastiff called Conan, who died a few years ago. But President Millet, before he was the president, he hired a medium to consult Conan as to whether he should run for the presidency of Argentina. And the dead Conan gave the go-ahead. I think Jeremy Hunt's been missing a trick here, hasn't he? Consulting dead pets on policy. The autumn statement might have been much improved. Well, have, have you seen him? Have you checked him out? I have. I mean, can you imagine Jeremy Hunt waving around a chainsaw in a crowd <laughs> like President Milau, his brash style? He's a bit like the ex-Brazilian leader, Bolsonaro, who was called the Trump of the Tropics. Yes, I think it's the same with President Milo. I've actually been to Argentina a few times, an incredible country. Of course, at the turn of the 20th century, it was one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Yeah. But then it got addicted to printing money. It got addicted to high inflation. 
it got addicted to pretty ropey leadership, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, and what a shame, such an incredibly fertile, naturally prosperous country full of really smart people, an incredible mix of Italian, Spanish, immigrants from all over the world over many centuries, really talented people. Lots of Welsh. Indeed, lots of Welsh, lots of Latina paddies there in exile in Argentina. And yet it still lurches from crisis to crisis, from inflation to inflation. I was there back in the early 2000s making a documentary about something called the Corralito, ah. Dólares en Fuga, when dollars were literally leaving bank accounts because the government said, if you've got dollar savings, we're going to convert them into peso savings. And of course, peso is the local currency, which was massively inflating. So a lot of the middle class in Argentina had their savings completely wiped out relatively recently. And that those scare tactics are still there. And that's why they very regularly attract quite extreme leaders because people are just so upset and so knocked with conventional politics. We're talking about people wielding chainsaws. I wish we'd had a chainsaw wielded with the immigration figures, the net immigration figures for 2023 should be published today, Thursday. That's when the podcast goes out. And the Home Office forecast, Liam, have predicted that the total could rise to a new record of 700,000. Now, now, listeners may remember that last year it was 606,000. That was 1.2 million people who arrived in the UK in 2022. And then, of course, they deducted the number of Brits who emigrated to get that 606,000 number. Now, my cynical take on this Home Office prediction of 700,000 is the government may well be briefing a higher figure so there's a sliver of relief when the actual number turns out to be a mere half a million. But what I feel, Liam, actually, and why I was pretty exercised in my column today, and as were the more than 3,000 Telegraph readers who commented, is that whatever smoke and mirrors are deployed, it is now really clear that our Conservative government is addicted to mass immigration, using it to drive up GDP and say, look, the economy is growing, when in fact my view is that it's putting immense pressure on already broken public services and reducing the quality of life for ordinary British families who, as you've taught me, co-pilot, that can be measured in GDP per capita. And of course, we had the delightful news this week that the UK is now worse than Rwanda forgetting to see a GP. So if someone can square that circle with people not being deported to Rwanda, but we can all hop over to Rwanda to get to see a GP. So we are seeing this really huge demographic change in the UK and even more immigration than we saw under Tony Blair. But the big difference, Liam, is the Conservatives have promised in every single general election manifesto to reduce immigration. And you and I, we were supporters of Brexit. And after Brexit, we thought we were going to get this Australian style points-based system, didn't we? Which would be allowing in the high-skilled workers that we needed. And and what did we get? A ridiculously weak, watered-down points-based system, which effectively has let in the world and his wife, her auntie, and 13 second cousins. And the threshold for earnings and qualifications were really sneakily lowered under Boris Johnson, as were the earnings required for the sponsors of dependents. And and, and let me leave listeners with the thought 
that we perhaps reached a slight low point in immigration into the UK when the latest addition to the shortage occupation list was floristry. Because as we know, there's a national shortage of ladies to make bouquets for you. But I'm making a serious point, Liam, in this column, really. I just wonder at a time when we're worried about social cohesion and the huge strain on public services. And yet the government seems to be just allowing more and more immigration into the country, flying in the face, not just flying in the face, kicking in the teeth its own most loyal voters. I think there's a lot in that. Uh, The British have real tolerance for immigration over many years. But I do think we're reaching the point now where really reasonable, moderate people at a time when public services are so stretched, at a time when the housing stock is so inadequate for young people who are trying to rent somewhere decent, who are trying to buy a place. I do think we've reached a point where the pace of immigration now is really tearing at the social fabric. And I say that as somebody of proud immigrant stock myself, who spent much of my time in journalism pointing out the benefits of higher immigration. There are lots and lots of benefits to immigration of 50, 100, 150, 200,000 people a year. But when it gets to six, seven, 800,000 people a year, and as you say, that's a net figure, So the actual number of people coming in are over a million and they tend to go to sort of more deprived inner city areas where they're competing for scarce public services. And the people who leave tend to be leaving sort of nice commuter belt houses and they go off and live in Spain or something. So these numbers, I agree with you, are really quite concerning for mainstream politicians. And it seems to me that lots of Whitehall is addicted to higher immigration, certainly the Treasury. They like the fact that there's lots of immigration because they can dress it up as growth overall, as you say, even though in terms of GDP per capita, that's growth per head, national income per head. The numbers obviously go down for the most part as more people come in. I think the reason the Tories have gone for tax cuts in this autumn statement are similar to the fallout that Sunak and Hunt know is going to be there when people read your column and look at the immigration figures when they're published on Thursday as Planet Normal is released. Hunt and Sunak are under a lot of pressure from the centre-right of their party, and they know in their hearts and bones, even if they try and deny it, that the centre-right of the Tory party speaks for an awful lot of silent majority, swing-voting Middle England voters, if you like, who will determine the next general election. That's why a lot of people in the Conservative Party are finding it difficult to understand why Sunak seems to have reverted to sort of full centrist dad going back to competing for seats with the Lib Dems rather than competing in the red wall areas of the Midlands and the North, seats that they absolutely must win if they're going to have any chance of putting a decent opposition up against Labour at the next general election. But it was a giveaway autumn statement on the surface with big tax cuts in terms of national insurance for individuals, big tax cuts for business in terms of something called full expensing, which we can discuss, Alison. But even though all the talk is of those tax cuts and all the rhetoric is of tax cuts, the overall tax burden, Alison, tax revenue as a share of GDP still went up as a result of today's measures, Wednesday's measures. Why? Because the headline tax cuts to national insurance and full expensing for business were more than offset 
by the freezing of tax thresholds that you and I have discussed a lot on Planet Normal, which has dragged more and more people into higher tax brackets. As a result of the freezing of those tax thresholds by Sunak, and then when he was Chancellor and then extended by Hunt as he became Chancellor, all the way to 2028, 4 million more people will be paying income tax than before by 2028, and 3 million more people will be paying tax at the higher rates. And we're talking about middle-ranking nurses, teachers, police officers. They're not meant to be high-rate taxpayers, but they are. They're being dragged into those higher tax brackets Mm. by stealth taxes, by the freezing of these tax thresholds. So the Chancellor talks a good game in terms of cutting taxes, but the reality on the ground is very different. I've been so highly trained up by you, (laughs) co-pilot. What have I created? It's like a Frankenstein, <laughs> the Franken economist. <laughs> yes, so I jotted down big cut in national insurance, but in reality, government is taking much more in tax, question mark. That's true. Giving back nine billion in tax cuts versus forty-five billion in tax rises via freezing thresholds. Is it a contract? Ask Liam. You see, look, I mean, honestly, just wind me up now. I'm just, I'm practically there, aren't I? You're exactly right, Alison. Your instincts are correct on this. The freezing of these tax thresholds is the equivalent to sort of four, five, six P increase in the basic rate of income tax over five years. Imagine if the Tories did that, it would absolutely upend British politics. People would be demonstrating on the streets. Sunak would be out in an instant. And I must say, I was at a gathering last night and I was talking to many senior politicians, including lots of conservatives and really well-placed, highly informed people in Parliament were telling me, Mm -hmm. Alison, that letters were going in. Wow. And not just a few, not just the awkward squad, letters were going in. And I wonder how quickly this autumn statement, which got a huge cheer in the House of Commons, will actually start now unraveling by the time Planet Normal is released on Thursday morning. As people realise, and I've got the little bit of the OBR report where the government is caught out red-handed, as people realise that the tax burden is actually going up. Let me just read it to you. So this is on page 11 of the OBR's technical document. Tax changes in the autumn statement reduce the tax burden by 0.7% of GDP, but it still rises in every year. To a post-war high of 37.7% of GDP by 2028-29. Income tax increases explain most of the increase in this forecast, rising from 10.2% of GDP this year to 11.3% in 2028-29, driven in areas by threshold freezes and strong nominal earnings growth. That's yeah. what we call fiscal drag right there. Yeah. By 2028, frozen thresholds result, these are the figures I just cited to you, in nearly 4 million additional workers paying income tax, 3 million more moved to the higher rate, that's 40%, and 400,000 more paying what we call the additional rate, that's the 45% rate of tax, which kicks in at around 125 grand. So that's what's happening. There's a lot of sleight of hand here. Mm. I wonder if the newspaper headline writers are going to pick up on it in time for tomorrow morning's editions. I'll tell you something that made me laugh that I saw on social media and someone had said, suddenly the government has headroom for tax cuts, like your broke mate has headroom for a week in Vegas. I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's true, isn't it? This whole idea of headroom's nonsense. All it means 
Headroom means in this instance that the OBR has forecast that we'll be borrowing slightly less mm. than we were in a year or two's time. Uh, but that, again, they're just forecasts. They're just forecasts of money we may not have to borrow. So we may be, if the forecasts are correct, and they often aren't, less in the hole than we thought we were going to be. But we're still in the hole, yeah. as they say at card tables in Vegas. So the idea that there's money to spend and so you must immediately spend it, it's complete nonsense. The only reason they've gone for massive tax cuts is because they're desperate, mm. because Starmer's 20, 25 points ahead in the opinion polls and because the centre-right of the Tory parliamentary party is still going nuts that Sunak got rid of Suella Braverman, who in many ways is their standard bearer. So I jotted down also on my questions for Liam Pad. It says that, so that means that instead of borrowing 115 billion as forecast in the March budget, the Chancellor will have borrowed only 98 billion. I mean, this is a, this <laughs> only 98,000 million. <laughs> only 98 and nine zeros in one year. In one year. Yes. It's absolute madness. The government is spending more than 10% of all revenue on debt service, on debt interest. More than 10%. That's immoral. We know what Jeremy says, don't we? I've been taking difficult decisions. I've been taking <laughs> difficult decisions. No, you haven't. You've been taking easy decisions to try and bribe your way to an election victory. <laughs> I'm Helena Morrissey, and I've worked in investments for over three decades. I'm also the mother of nine. And now I'm working with Telegraph Money, your new and complete guide to being better off. Whether it's paying for your children's education or navigating the career ladder, I'm here to help you make the best decisions for you and your loved ones. You'll find valuable insights and expert opinion, plus a range of useful tools and calculators. Search Telegraph Money today. Now, we invite all kinds of guests aboard the Rockets of Right Thinking, from cabinet ministers to spy chiefs to business leaders. But sometimes, Alison, it just feels right to welcome aboard one of our own. Ben Wright's a columnist and associate editor at The Telegraph, of course. He was previously The Telegraph's business editor, one of the most respected financial journalists in the UK. He's previously worked for The Wall Street Journal and also Financial News. Ben, a busy day for you. We're delighted to welcome you back to Planet Normal. Alison and I are keen to hear what you made of the statement. So what did you make of it? A pre-Christmas giveaway? Can the country afford it? Uh, hi, Liam. Hi, Alison. Thank you very much for that intro. I think that's the nicest intro I've ever got anywhere. I didn't mean a word of it. <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> I did. I wish I was a spy chief or a cabinet minister. <laughs> <laughs> there's still time but you're still, yeah yeah maybe maybe so was it a giveaway was it a tax cutting awesome statement sort of but not really i think is the answer to that so context is everything here um and you've sort of been mentioning it already but the real sort of hero slash anti-hero of this awesome statement was inflation because it was doing a lot of the heavy lifting and obviously higher than expected inflation has pushed up tax receipts uh, and hunter's banked those but it's also pushed up public spending which he's basically ignoring and obviously the main rabbit out of the hat was the cut to national insurance from 
by two points to 10% from and he's bringing that forward. That's going to happen in January. Now, the key here is what this all costs, and that's expected to cost £9 billion. So that, that cut in national insurance cuts £9 billion. However, it's been estimated that because tax thresholds will be frozen next year, so this was the fiscal drag you were talking about earlier, there'll be a £10 billion increase in personal taxes in real terms. Um, and so what you've got really is Hunt taking a tenner off taxpayers, giving them nine quid back and asking for us to applaud his generosity. Mm. I think you're right about that, Ben. I think the Tories have worked very hard to make it look and feel like a tax cutting budget. Those two big tax cuts are very significant, not just the fall in national insurance, but the making permanent of full expensing, which I'm sure you'll talk about. But the reality is, and it's there in the OBR's fine print in the technical documents, is that the overall tax burden is still going up. And there's lots of centre-right Conservatives who said, if this autumn statement raises the tax burden any more, it was already heading for a 70-year high, now it's heading for an even higher 70-year high, then they wouldn't actually vote for the legislation to implement these measures. I'm, I'm not sure that they're going to follow through on that threat, but it certainly shows you how high feelings are about the extent to which the Tories have raised taxes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned full expensing there. Hunt's made that permanent. And that's definitely a good thing. Everybody was crying out for it. It's going to cost another £11 billion a year. But it's also worth remembering again, I mean, a full expensing, that's you can offset your tax if uh, you're investing in infrastructure or machinery and things like that. But it's worth remembering, it was originally brought in partly to offset the rise in corporation tax announced at the budget earlier this year, where it went up from 19% to 25%. So to, to offset some of that, he brought in expensing and he originally brought it in for three years. And the reason he brought it in for only three years, which effect, reduced its effectiveness, was because otherwise he would have bust one of his fiscal rules. So again, claiming it's this incredibly generous tax break is a little disingenuous at best. And you've mentioned it already, but it's the, the bottom line is the UK tax take is high and it's going to keep rising. So it's 36.2% of GDP now and it will rise. You've already mentioned this figure, but I think it's the key figure from the OBR today. It will rise to 37.7% of GDP uh, in 2028. Exactly. With those frozen thresholds dragging in literally millions of workers into tax, into higher tax brackets, stealth taxes, of course. Something I wanted to mention, which hasn't had much airplay since the Chancellor sat down, but I think it's important, is the strategic manufacturing fund, if you like. Four and a half billion pounds of government investment by 2030, says Jeremy Hunt. He's been working on this with Business Secretary Kemi Badenoch. This is a focus on automotives, aerospace, clean energy, life sciences, areas where the UK already has decent activities, a comparative advantage in some sense. This is really Britain's answer to America's Inflation Reduction Act, isn't it? The hundreds of billions of pounds that the White House have earmarked for investment in, quotes, the industries of the future. Our pot of such money is much, much smaller. But I do think it's interesting sort of philosophically and ideologically that you've got politicians like Jeremy Hunt, like Rishi Sunak, like Kemi Badenoch, who are you know broadly centre-right to right people, and yet they are putting money aside for the government to actively invest in industries in a way that we'd previously associate with more centre-left social democrat governments. 
Yeah, that's true. It is interesting. And I suppose it's ultimately it's down to the problem that the government is facing is that, you know, as you've discussed, the tax burden is really, really high. National debt is really, really high. The demands on spending are not going down. We can look for efficiencies here and there, but ultimately the population is getting older and that's going to require much more spending on, on things like the NHS and welfare. And the only way out of this, the only way out of this is to boost productivity and to boost growth. And I think that is causing people to look for whatever lever they can find in order to to try and kickstart some growth. And, you know, funds like the one that you mentioned, that that's what that's what it's designed to do. I mean, and it and it won't be it won't be the government alone that can do it. They'll be hoping that by putting some of this money in, they'll be able to pull in more from the private sector. And obviously full expensing is a is another way in which they're hoping to get what has been pretty anemic business investment in the UK uh, in recent years, trying to trying to pump that up. It doesn't always work, though, does it, Ben? This is the kind of stuff that you cover so well in your column. Ben Marlowe, our friend and colleague, does the same thing. This sort of you, know, you guys are really business columnists, and you'll know to your fingertips that the government's put up a hundred million quid for you know a so-called gigafactory. Blythe in the northeast of England, a perfect place to have a gigafactory building those batteries for electric vehicles. There's a deep water port nearby, there's a, a factory site that's already connected to the mains and so on, which there could be lots of delays getting that kind of infrastructure in place. And yet, private sector money has just not properly come forward, even though the government matching funding is there. So it may be that some of this 4.5 million doesn't actually get spent, or it may be that some of it's already been spent. It'll take a sleuth like you to really work it out. I mean, the money that the government's promised to Tata for a new factory in Somerset, money that the government has promised to Jaguar Land Rover and so on. Is that included in this 4.5 billion or is this 4.5 billion part of a new pot? It's difficult to know now. And I suggest it'll be difficult to know ever. Yeah, yeah. Because often the government doesn't disclose these sweetheart deals that it does with private sector often overseas companies does it no 100 percent. you're completely right and it's yeah there's there's very often double and triple counting going on here and it's very hard to work out what's new money and what's what's old money and stuff that's being pre-announced ultimately i think when we're talking about boosting business investment there can be these sort of enticements incentives baubles and they can help here and there but it, they don't help if the broader business investment environment is not there. And that really is, you know, the tricky thing. And when you talk to businesses, as I have done for the, for the past few years, we've just been through a, a long period of, of uncertainty. We've also been through a long period where not so much now, certainly under Sunak, it's changed, but uh, lots of lots of businesses have been complaining that they can't get through to the government, can't talk to them, haven't been even getting FaceTime. And there are sort of broader things that sit above the incentives that the government has flip-flopped on. And things like the attitude to net zero targets, for example, you may be pro or anti them, it doesn't really matter. But from a business perspective, they're kind of neutral on whether they're good or bad. They just need consistency, right? They want the consistency. So if the goalposts keep moving, then the easiest thing to do as a business is just to not invest, wait and see what's going to happen. And there's a little bit of that now because a lot of the business community is, frankly, waiting for a Labour government. 
Ben, I thought Rachel Reeves made a strong response to Jeremy Hunt. She talked about too little, too late. I'm kind of coming to admire her and and trust her more indeed than, than I do Jeremy Hunt. But something she did touch on, which we haven't mentioned yet, was that the national debt was barely falling. I mean, 91.6% of GDP next year, 93.2%, 2026, 2027, 92.8% in 2028-29. I mean, that, that is basically flat, isn't it? And with these enormous, I mean, Liam's often mentioned, these enormous high debt interest payments, even if we do have any surplus, that doesn't seem to be enough to get debt down. And, and you know, as a, you know, I'm, of course, a very, very up and coming ec- economist, but, you know, still a bit of a novice. This, this seems to me, I mean, are we, are we building a house of cards here? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of what we're talking about here, so they're, they're huge numbers, and we're having big arguments about how much the little bits that they're changing. So the tax burden is huge and is not going down. The debt burden is huge and not going down. And growth is anemic and not going up. So it's basically, if you wanted to take the headlines out of the autumn statement today, it's as you were, because not not much is changing. When, when there's no fundamental catalyst to get the UK economy out, out of the mire in which it is at the moment. And that is basically the stick which Rachel Reeves has been using to to beat the Tories for the for the past couple of years now. And she was able to do it again. And she's sort of getting better at it because she's getting more practiced at it. <laughs> Just to say, I think this is one for both of you, really. So the pollsters, Redfield and Wilton, asked which party they associated with lowered taxes. And 32% said Labour against 23% for the Tories. And then Labour's also more trusted now on the nation's finances, according to YouGov, which asked which party would be better at handling the economy. 29% said Labour, compared with 20% who backed the Tories. I mean, I mean, this is absolutely terrible for the Conservatives, isn't it? I mean, this was, we mentioned, Ben, we mentioned immigration earlier. So on the two top thing, on their two best, most trusted things, immigration, borders and taxes, they are absolutely tanking and lagging behind Labour. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's fair to say there's been a sort of whiff of desperation hanging around the Conservative Party for a while. And Jeremy Hunt tried to sort of open the windows and turn on the extractor fan today. And ultimately, he he didn't really clear the air. You know, outside the pandemic, this was the third largest fiscal loosening since 2010. So he's done a lot, but not really been able to move the dial. And by the way, inflation is still at 4.6% which is just over two and a half times what the Bank of England's target is, that strikes me as a little risky. And I just wonder whether this might have been, there's been a little bit of chatter on Twitter about whether this autumn statement means that we're going to have an election in the spring, whether this was a sort of last roll of the dice Mm. before an earlier than expected election. And that, in a way, that strikes me as, as plausible because there was bits of it that were sort of, it felt like a Nigel Lawson tribute act. So there's the 2% cut in national insurance, right? Yeah. Which felt a lot like Nigel Lawson's 2% cut in the basic rate just before 1987. And then Hunt has announced plans to sell the government's entire holding in NatWest, the high street bank, to the public over the coming year. He even said it's time to get Sid investing again. He did. He did. You'll remember better than me, Liam, because as discussed, you're, you're so much older than me that he, when he was yeah. number two. <laughs> it's so bitter, so bitter. <laughs> 
I went down to the city to post my application for Sid. Right. Well, there you go. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Well, uh, so when he was, I think when he was number two at the Treasury, he wrote the paper for the Centre for Policy Studies in 1980. That was the paper that laid the groundwork for the Thatcherite privatisation plans. And that's, that's obviously led to the all of the Sid privatisation. So it just felt like a sort of, as I say, a Nigel Lawson tribute act, a bit of sort of ersatz Thatcherism. And I just felt like it was sort of maybe the last big push ahead of an election in the spring. It strikes me that this could lay the groundwork for an election, but if they can hang on longer and if they feel that the economy is improving in January, February next year, then my hunch is still that they'll hang around to do an even more kind of pro consumer budget in March or April before an election next summer or autumn. A couple of other things we should just mention for completeness. The package contained a benefits upgrade, working age benefits upgrade, 6.7% from next April. The Chancellor there using the higher September inflation number to upgrade those benefits rather than the lower October number. That's worth about 470 quid a year for 5 million of the UK's lowest income households. Recipients of the basic state pension will be pleased that the triple lock was honoured. So the state pension went up 8.5% from April next year. That's 900 quid a year. That's quite a lot of money. And then, of course, we had those investment zones, those free ports, tax reliefs there extended from five to 10 years. I didn't realise the tax reliefs on them only lasted five years, Ben. I don't know if you did. And then new investment zones in the West Midlands, East Midlands, and Greater Manchester. And I wanted to ask you, Ben, we were just talking about Nigel Lawson there. How would you feel watching this if you were Liz Truss? <laughs> so I was going to go for the word vindicated, but I don't think yeah. I don't think it is a full I know you can't bring yourself to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure it's a full vindication, but I mean obviously there was lots in it that was similar to her emergency budget, cutting business tax, cutting personal tax going for growth. The big difference, of course, was that Jeremy Hunt didn't go out of his way to annoy the Office for Budget Responsibility. Was this statement just Liz Truss, but with the civil servants squared off? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> and we're, it's sort of more sensible messaging, maybe, is the, is the way to put it. Yeah. I said at the time that I didn't have a, a huge amount of issues with what Truss was trying to do. I mean, I mean, a lot of the taxes that she was cutting had only been introduced very recently. And it clearly, the idea that we should be going for growth, I don't think anybody argues with that. It was just uh, the manner in which she did it. And it obviously spooked the bond markets, and that's not a great idea. I thought that Hunt went to oleaginous lengths to thank all the various, as Liam said, squaring off the marvellous, you know, my marvellous friends at my distinguished yeah. colleagues. They're stellar work. <laughs> there was an awful lot of that. Ben, something we have a lot on Planet Normal, we hear from a lot of small business people, medium-sized business people, and they kind of shriek. We had a particularly plaintive shriek a while ago from a lovely guy called Mike who works in hospitality who said that the last rise in the national living wage was going to mean his business had to make an extra quarter of a million a year just to meet his staff wages. So when Hunt puts up the national living wage to 11.44 an hour and applying it, as Liam pointed out earlier, to 
21-year-olds, not just from 23-year-olds. That looks like Father Christmas Hunt being very generous, but actually what it means is getting employers to, to stump up even more, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, and certainly retailers and leisure companies are, are definitely feeling the pain, retail and hospitality. I mean, on the flip side, he did freeze the small business multiplier and he's uh, freezing business rates for, for hospitality and retail. That's quite a big move. Yeah. That costs a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I'm not sure pubs. He even mentioned the pub in the village where my children go to school. The Jolly Farmer. The Jolly Farmer. Have you been? No, I haven't. (laughs) I've just got a weird memory for these things. (laughs) (laughs) Very good memory. It's where I go for a drink to calm myself down after a parent's evening. (laughs) (laughs) So there was lots of measures to help pubs and sort of the wider hospitality industry. So he was mindful of that. I don't know whether he was particularly trying to sort of offset the, the pain that will be felt from the higher living wage, but he did do a lot to help those sectors out. Another topic that I'd expect the likes of you to get your teeth really into and, and write the definitive column, Ben, no no, no pressure. Oh, always looking for ideas. <laughs> the reform to pension funds, the, the so-called mansion house reforms. Now, I know from my time as an asset manager that if you talk to Canadian pension funds, US pension funds, quite a lot of the Asian pension funds, they've got like 10, 15, 20% of their assets in what we call venture capital, you know, live businesses where there's some risk, but they can be really high return. And their local regulators are happy with that because so much of the rest of their assets are in very, very conservative investments, government debt, and so on. We haven't had that in the UK. Our pension fund assets are enormous. Our pension fund management industry is world-class And yet we managed to get very little of our pension fund assets into British businesses. So they stay in the UK. They don't get sold off to foreign buyers. They don't float on foreign stock exchanges. They can actually make the move from being really great startups to fully fledged world class businesses. Now, these mansion house reforms came in. It strikes me they only really raised that threshold of the share of pension funds that could be in venture capital to about 5%, where really we should be going for 10, 15, 20%, and that would still be a conservative approach. What's your sense of those reforms? Do you think Hunt is really serious about that? Because it would be a major change in the way we run our economy, wouldn't it? If pension savings can really go to town in terms of boosting growth, there's a lot of what we call long money in the UK but a lot of it is lazy. It's not hardworking capital. It just kind of sits there. Yeah. Could there be a, the germ of a real change here? It's a massive area. It's one that I think is hugely underappreciated and one that we, we, don't, we don't talk about enough. So I think the key word that Jeremy Hunt used today was consolidation. You talked about Canadian and Australian pension schemes. The key thing about them is they are enormous, ginormous, trillions and trillions of dollars of assets. The problem that we have in the UK is that too many of our pension schemes are too small. So they don't very often have the in-house expertise to invest in things like private equity and venture capital, and therefore they don't. And so, as I say, the key word is consolidation. Now, this is I've been writing about fund management and pensions and investment for you know over 20 years. It is something that is talked about all the time and doesn't really hasn't really happened. But if Hunt or the government of whatever stripe can actually drive that forward and get a lot of these small pension schemes consolidated so that the pool of money that they're looking after grows, 
that means that they get the uh, economies of scale, they'll be able to get the in-house expertise, and they'll be able to start investing in the slightly trickier asset classes that you mentioned. That could have an absolutely transformative effect on the economy. I was talking to somebody in the city the other day, and we were talking about, isn't it a shame that the UK doesn't have a sovereign wealth fund? which is a discussion that happens all the time. And she made the point it does. It's the local authority pension schemes. It's just it's so fragmented at the moment that it can't operate like a sovereign wealth fund. If it consolidated, there's amazing things it could do. What would you give Jeremy Hunt as a mark out of 10, Ben, not to put you on the spot or anything? I mean, I think politically he's been quite shrewd. We'll see the extent to which the wheels come off in the next 24 hours. But I think even the centre-right of the Tory party, you know, never satisfied ever, they must at least acknowledge that he's tried. Yeah, I mean, he, he's got a dreadful hand and he played it reasonably well. I think that's fair. Give him seven out of ten. Oh, that's generous. I mean, it was definitely an assured performance. Part of these things are is the political theatre. And on that, I think he was assured he looked statesman-like. He looked like the kind of guy you would like looking after the economy. <laughs> I mean, you talked about whether the wheels will come off on the on the numbers. I, I, you know, I don't, I, it's, it's staring everyone in the face. I mean, that number, 37.7% of GDP for the tax burden, and it's going up, it's going to be going up in every single year for the next five to six years. And they're pitching it as a tax cutting autumn statement. So it's clearly not that. And then all of the rhetoric around inflation, I just find weird as well. You know, the Conservatives have been tweeting out this message saying, we were told it wasn't possible to halve inflation, but Rishi Sunak did. Now we can cut taxes. Now, there's three sentences, and there's a problem with every one of those sentences. Nobody says it wasn't possible. Inflation was always going to fall sharply, and it was going to fall around about now because of the reduction in the, the energy price cap. At the beginning of October, yeah. Nobody thinks that Sunak did it. The polling shows that less than a quarter of voters credit the government for the reduction in inflation. Nearly half say the fall was due to outside factors, which, of course, it was. And third, Hunt is able to cut taxes, headline cut taxes, because inflation has not fallen enough and has dragged people into the different tax brackets. And that created the headroom that allows him to cut taxes in headline terms. So uh, it's just, it is kind of smoke and mirrors. It really is. I don't think it'll move the dial much at all. My strong sense from my Telegraph inbox and from Planet Normal listeners who are absolutely furious with the government, I don't think there's much that can buy them off at the moment. And I'll be interested to see if it has any positive impact on the polls at all. My strong sense is it won't, and that we may then see, as Liam said, some of the letters going in. I mean, Ben, we mentioned Nigel Lawson earlier, and I was teasing Liam with Jeremy Hunt saying, I'm taking difficult decisions. I don't think he's taking difficult decisions. I think you mentioned public spending. Public spending is so astronomical. The Lawson-Thatcher government would have been looking at making savings. Mrs. Thatcher would have been cutting your cloth according to your means. That was her driving philosophy of the grocer's daughter. And I don't see them being bold enough to suggest to the public that we cannot go on spending the vast amounts we're spending on the NHS when we're getting a really, really poor health service for our money. But something that our distinguished colleague, Philip Johnston, raised in his excellent column this morning. We tried to get him on this week, Ben. He wasn't available, so we had to go for you. (laughs) All right, fair enough, fair enough. I don't mind being second fiddle to him. (laughs) 
But Philip, I think, is great because Philip, having been around for many years, lend that very useful historical perspective. And he was says that, you know, instead of borrowing 115 billion as forecast in March, the Chancellor will only have borrowed 98 billion, which, as Phil points out, happens to be 21 billion more than the same period last year. But in, as he says, the Alice in Wonderland world of modern economics, this is now seen as a saving of 17 billion, which can now be spent. Yeah. The figures have run away, haven't oh, they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you'd said to Nigel Lawson or Margaret Thatcher, this is the level of kind of mad deception. It's crazy maths, isn't it, Ben? Uh, yeah, of course it's crazy maths. The trouble is there are huge demands on the public purse as well. And the population is growing. It's getting older. The medicines are getting more sophisticated, more expensive. We're living in an incredibly unstable world, so we need to spend more on defence. You want to cut your cloth, but where do you cut it? And ultimately, the electorate wants a lot of stuff that just doesn't want to pay for it. So it becomes an incredibly hard circle to square. My response to that would be that we need an entirely new funding model for the NHS, that we cannot deliver first world medicine with a sort of 1940s model of healthcare. And that's a brave choice. That's something that some political group is going to have to propose at some point because we, we can't go. And we're spending 180 billion a year on the NHS. I, I 100% agree with you. And it's, it's just a really tricky prospect to sell to the electorate. And ultimately, I think it was, I don't know whether it was. Was it Tony Blair who said it? That basically the Tories aren't trusted on the NHS, so it can't be them. And so I have some hope that West Streeting realises this and that he has the gumption, the backbone, and the, and he'll have the political wiggle room to do it. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts and we learn so much from you citizens of planet normal yes we've got a bit of feedback about the autumn statement this is from someone commenting on the telegraph website actually just known as meh the tories are total idiots if they think that some plastic tax cuts are going to save them at the next election then they really are stupid basically they've failed on pretty much every single policy objective they set out but it's okay we'll just try and hoodwink you all by making a few token tax cuts in the run-up to the general election even though taxes are at a post-wartime high. It just shows how much contempt they have for the everyday voter, who they assume is too thick to see through it. I don't want a Labour government either, but I can't hold my nose and vote for the Tories. They smell so bad now, it's just beyond palatable. I will almost certainly be voting reform, assuming they put a candidate up in my area. And Elias talks about, Liam, something that I mentioned to you earlier about immigration. This government sees immigration, says Elias, as an industry, one of our very few. It goes something like this. If we have net immigration of one million or whatever every couple of years and half of those immigrants eventually take out mortgages with an average value of £300,000, then that's £150 entering the UK economy. And that's before we get to the car loans, credit cards and so on. All that money being created without any manufacturing, intellectual creativity or productive effort whatsoever. Wow, an economic miracle. Another way of looking at it is that Rishi's Tories are paying their bills by selling our country's living space on higher purchase. Just another version of flogging the family silver. Was that Harold Macmillan, Liam? That was Harold Macmillan, indeed. Yeah. Who also said, you've never had it so good. (laughs) This is from Anne. 
Our government are cheap. They don't want to train people up. They just want to grow the economy on bought stuff. They care nothing for the environment or the homes we need or any kind of sustainable immigration policy. The SDP cares about this. They want sustainable levels of immigration. That, of course, is the modern version of the SDP. Famous people involved in that include Rod Little and the leader, William Clouston, who we know well, don't we, Alison? We do. And I'm looking closely at now both at reform and the SDP. And and the SDP has a plan to restrict immigration to 100,000 a year until we've got everybody else back on track because they're very keen on, as you are, on building enough housing for our younger people. This is from Matt. Dear Liam, quick one for you and the co-pilot. My teenage son's visiting colleges ahead of starting A-levels next year. One subject he's interested in is economics. I'd pay good money to see the reaction on Mr. Halligan's <laughs> face if he were to read the economic syllabus these days. Might be one to check out around the indoctrination of our youth. It's anti-capitalism and environmentalism all the way, as if Greta Thunberg had written it. The doom goblin. <laughs> Keep up the great work, both of you. Thanks so much for it all. And this is from Ian. I volunteer at a food bank outside the M25. Good on you, Ian. Lately, I've been getting a huge influx of families of overseas mature students seeking support and free food. How do we spot them? Because they're better dressed and presented than our standard local citizens who actually need to use a food bank. Surely these people have come to the UK on the basis that they can support themselves. This is not where our gifting supporters would expect their donations to go. No, indeed. This is from Biddy. Dear Alison Liam, I heard a story about a community in pre-war Germany whose non-Jewish inhabitants decided to put menorahs in their windows to confuse the Nazis and protect their Jewish friends. I have decided to wear a Star of David brooch on my coat to support our Jewish citizens here in the UK. I suggest that any listeners to Planet Normal who are disturbed by the surge in anti-Semitism do the same. Thank you both for being an oasis of sanity in this mad, mad world from Biddy. Just That's a lovely thought, Biddy. Just to mention, Liam, if Planet Normal listeners are interested, I will be taking part in the first national march against anti-Semitism in London on Sunday, this coming Sunday. And the British Friends of Israel, including me, Toby Young, Laura Dodsworth, Maureen Lippman, lots of other terrific people are going to be meeting by the Gladstone statue at one o'clock. That's outside St. Clement's Danes Church near the Royal Courts of Justice. So that is 1pm at St. Clement's Dane Church at 1pm on Sunday. And we've got 50 October declaration flags that need waving. So if you have the time, please do come along and say hello. Of course, Alison, as well as the autumn statement and the operational pause in hostilities between Hamas and Israel, the COVID inquiry rumbles on. This is Nigel in Sweden on that COVID inquiry. Dear Alison and Liam, will any of the articles in the Telegraph, the Spectator and the Sunday Times by Lord Sumption make any difference? Probably not, I fear. Maybe Planet Normal, Toby Young Free Speech Union, the Spectator and Unheard should jointly set up an alternative inquiry. We've talked about this, haven't we? Yes. And invite not just the well-known, but the tens of thousands of children, students, doctors, NHS patients and relatives whose lives have been ruined by lockdown and will continue to be so for years ahead. And of course, invite thousands of Swedes who sailed through relatively unscathed to bear witness. You can make a start by documenting the thousands of emails Planet Normal has received and interviews that you've conducted over the course of the pandemic. That's from Nigel. And this is from Phil. Dear Alison and Liam, the more I hear about this in COVID inquiry, the more I'm disgusted by it. Thank you both for continuing to support the real experts like Professor Carl Hennigan, 
I strongly believe that the inquiry should now be abandoned, said Phil. Who's going to believe anything that comes out of it? Or could it be that the establishment's desperately trying to prove they were correct, even by lying, says Phil, so that the next time, such as the WHO pandemic directives, net existence, zero nonsense, etc., they think, hope that they can force the public back into a totalitarian existence. I have to say, there's a lot of anger there about this COVID inquiry, a feeling that it is just a whitewash, a feeling that they are only calling witnesses from, as Carl Hennigan himself said, professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford, no less, that they're only really calling people from one side of the argument. That's right, Liam. And we had Sir Patrick Valance and Sir Chris Whitty both giving evidence at the inquiry this week and both still absolutely justifying lockdown, even though Patrick Valance is on tape uh, just a few days before the first lockdown, outlining very enthusiastically the principle of herd immunity. So there's a tremendous amount of of amnesia and backside covering going on. And and the entire thing seems to be uh, really dedicated to throwing Boris under the bus, even though Boris seems to have been one of the the few key players who, who was actually asking any of the sensible questions. And talking about COVID, Pete says... Can anyone look at Professor Chris Whitty without being reminded of the kids' program, The Herbs, specifically the pompous stuffed shirt owl? I can't see Whitty without thinking of the song, I'm a rather fat feathery owl from Sage. I'm not very happy. In fact, I'm in a rage. Sorry if this puts an irrecoverable image in your head. Best regards, Pete. And finally, Alison, a little bit self-congratulatory, but it's almost Christmas. This is from Andrew. (laughs) Dear Alison Liam, I'm a Telegraph subscriber and would pay that subscription just for Planet Normal. Hey. Editors, please note. <laughs> Not only do Alison and Liam nail it every week, it's also such a relief that there are many thousands of other, quotes, normal people out there. If you just listen to or watch the mainstream media, you'd assume we're in a minority of one. Incidentally, my wife and I stopped consuming BBC News, Sky News, Channel 4 News about four years ago. and We've never looked back. We do enjoy watching Liam Allison and others on GB News. Thank you so much for Planet Normal. I hope you keep doing this for many years to come. This is actually public service broadcasting in my view. Well, thank you, Andrew. You're very, very generous. We will keep on keeping on. It's not always easy. I mean, do you know what it's like working with Alison Pearson? But anyway, <laughs> on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave the sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week, it's your turn, Alison. Right, it's definitely going to Andrew for his nicely judged. <laughs> Entirely balanced puff piece. Basically, if you if you butter us up and send us a packet of fudge, we're yours. <laughs> Particularly if you're Welsh. So Andrew, email us at plantnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put the word mug winner in the subject heading of that email. Give us your postal address and we will send you a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and we jolly well hope you do, please do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where, as Andrew has just proven, you could possibly be, if you write something sufficiently nice and oleaginous. (laughs) The second use of that word in one podcast. (laughs) I can't really say it. It's the kind of word that works better on paper than when you actually say it. Absolutely, it is a word. Yes, but as uh, as Jeremy Hunt says, I've been taking difficult decisions, Liam. Difficult decisions. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet that comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Cass Ho, Louisa Wells. Stay safe, in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.
This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.